Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. About six months ago, I started getting some emails. I had never signed up for this email list. I have no idea how I got put on this email list. I don't know if it was a prank somebody did, but I started getting these emails, and they were called Culture Translator. They're targeted at parents and just tell you what's going on in that your kids are talking about. And so I read one. It wasn't bad. It was okay. But what shocked me was that a few weeks later, some of the terms that this sort of email was talking about, my kids started using. And so I stopped deleting the emails as soon as I got them and started reading them going, oh, maybe, okay, maybe I need to pay attention to this. This happened just a few weeks ago. The uh, article came out in it and was talking about dupes. And then a few weeks later, my kids started to use the term dupes in casual conversation. And I was sort of mystified. This is not a term that I had heard before, but apparently it's a slang term for cheaper products that you can buy that are good copies of something that might be more expensive. So can't afford a Gatorade? Find a nice dupe with body armor. I guess body armor is more expensive, but it's, it's what, when I was growing up, we called knockoffs. You know, it's something that's sort of the cheaper version of something that is, that is, you know, too expensive. And so my kids started talking about this. They started using this term. In a way, all that dupes are is just another way of phrasing life hacks, which is something that like all of us will often click on those spammy links. If it's going to give you, you know, five better ways to clean your house or I don't know, we all click on that stuff all the time. Maybe I just do. Is it just me clicking on? Never mind. I don't want to talk about that anymore. No, but this is what every advertisement has been about in the history of humanity. Buy this and you'll be more efficient. Purchase this and you'll be more attractive. Sign up here and you'll be more comfortable. Or maybe it's just buy this and you'll get all the benefits of the expensive one at half the price. This is sort of what happens. This is what advertising is all about. As we have been walking through the book of Galatians, Paul has been showing us the fruitlessness of replacing the gospel of grace with any sort of rule-keeping or law-following. He's shown how strict adherence to the Old Testament law system can't save us, and it can't add anything to our salvation. Our salvation is complete and perfect just because of what Jesus has already done. It doesn't need any help. And there are no life hacks to make it better. Anything that suggests that we can improve on the gospel of Jesus Christ is a cheap substitute. And yet, there is something buried in our nature, something inside of you and me that is constantly pushing us to think that maybe we can. Maybe we should. And using the law of God to justify ourselves, using the rule keeping to justify our actions is a cheap substitute for the gospel of grace. Rule following puts us in the driver's seat. 
It makes us the ones who are in control of our self-salvation project, and it takes God off of his throne. But not only is living our lives by the law a cheap substitute for the grace of God, but it's a misunderstanding of why the law was given to us in the first place. And so Paul is going to unpack that for us this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open to Galatians 3. If you don't, that's okay. We'll have the words on the screen behind me. And if you're able, I'd ask that you would stand as I read God's word to us this morning. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it's no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, and to the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Paul begins to explain what the whole point of the law, what the whole point of the Old Testament rules and regulations are with an illustration. He uses the human experience we have of contracts to show us something about the covenant that God has made with Abraham and everybody who comes after him. Once a contract is signed, that's it. When the ink goes onto the paper, the contract is valid. And unless you've got a lot of money to pay a lawyer to get you out of that contract, you're not getting out of that contract. You can't say, oopsies, I take it back. You can't say, no, no, no. I crossed my fingers behind my back when I signed it. It doesn't count. No. If you sign a contract, that contract is good and it is in place. 
Now, if that's true for us as humans, if we understand that that's how contracts work, how much more true is it of God that if he makes a covenant with us, that it is going to hold true? He is the unchanging creator of the universe, and he has covenanted with us, his people. It is never going to change. Once God has committed to us, there's no turning back and there's no take backs. That's part of God's very unchanging character and nature. It's why the Bible constantly, especially the Old Testament, emphasizes that God is a God of steadfast love. Now, if you're with us during the summers, you know that we go through the Psalms during the summers and and choose different Psalms each week to study. And as we do that, one of the things that we've seen again and again every summer that comes up as a constant theme of the Psalms is that God has steadfast love for us. You might remember that the Hebrew word underneath there is hased, and that that word means that God is covenantly faithful. So if God makes a covenant, it is a sure thing because it is rooted in who he is. It is tied to his very nature. So if God breaks a covenant, God ceases to exist. That's how serious God is about this. And Paul says, listen, we understand how contracts work. We understand how this goes between humans. How much more important is it that God has made a covenant with his people? And he sort of begins to lay out his argument a little bit further, that this illustration is showing us that the salvation that God offers to his people has been about promise and faith all along. All the covenant promises of the Old Testament find themselves fulfilled in Jesus himself. That's the whole point of verse 16. I know it's, it's a little bit odd as we read it because Paul's making an argument about whether, whether it says offsprings or offspring. And as we read that, we can kind of get a little bit lost in the sort of details. But what Paul is saying is that all of this was pointing to Jesus all along. That all of the covenants that were made throughout the Old Testament, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, the new covenant that was promised by the prophets, all of those things find their way to point and be fulfilled in Jesus. And so Paul is taking as an example the covenant that God made with Abraham. And I think it would be helpful for us to get that into our minds because it shapes this passage. In Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and he says he's going to make a covenant with him. He says, I am going to make a covenant to be your God and you and your children after you will be my people. And he has Abraham set up this very sort of Old Testament ritual. It feels like super Old Testament when we read Genesis 15 because God has Abraham cut a bunch of animals in half. And then he has him lay all of these animals out side by side. And this was a part of the way that people throughout the Old Testament in the Bible and outside of the Bible would make covenants, would make contracts with one another. They called this a blood path. And what they would do is they would walk with one another through this blood path and they would make promises. I will do this and you will do that. And they would come to the end of it and they would say, and if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, you can do this to me. And they would both say that. That was how a covenant was made. In fact, it it said that the covenant is cut is the language that is used both in the Bible and outside of the Bible about covenants. 
But Genesis 15 does something really interesting, and we might miss it if we don't pay attention. Right when Abraham finishes laying out this animals, making this blood path for God and him to make a covenant, Abraham has a nap. He falls asleep, and then he has a vision of God himself walking the blood path. So that the covenant that God made with Abraham was not dependent on Abraham fulfilling it. That God was the promise all along. That's what is in the back of Paul's mind. That is what Paul is so adamant about. God gave Abraham both his justification and his promises by faith, not by Abraham's rule keeping. The covenant was cut while Abraham was asleep. He couldn't be keeping all the rules when he's asleep. So Paul furthers his point by showing, okay, now we're going to get to the law because the law comes 430 years after this moment, after God makes a covenant with promises to Abraham. And so Paul asked the question, does the law undo all the promises made by God to Abraham? Of course not. Covenants for, are forever. The promise of God to Abraham precedes the law. And so at this point, what Paul starts doing in our text is something that Paul does whenever he gets like really deep in a theological idea, when he sort of is laying out something that might be confusing or difficult, which is Paul anticipates the questions that are going to come up. Okay, all right. Okay, Paul, I hear you. If it's true that God made all these promises to Abraham and that they all find their fulfillment in his offspring, Jesus, and that's what the, the law is primarily about, why then did God even give the law to his people? I mean, if it was just about Jesus all along, why did God give the law 430 years later to the people? I mean, there's a lot of rules in there about sacrifices. There's a bunch of rules about uh, regulations on how to wash your hands, on how to stay clean. And so Paul answers. He says, listen, the law was given to show that we need the promise because we can't achieve a righteousness on our own. It was given so that we would understand that our sin isn't just mistakes, isn't just oopsies, but that it puts us on the wrong side of God. And it pointed out that all of the Old Testament believers were in need of a Messiah. So until the fulfillment of those promises to Abraham was accomplished, the law was a constant reminder of our need for a Savior. In many ways, what Paul is saying is that the law was a check engine light. It's flashing and pointing out that there is something going on that is beyond our ability to fix. Now, I know some of you are mechanically inclined, but for the bulk of us, when your check engine light comes on, it's an indicator that something beyond your abilities has gone wrong with your car. Now, maybe some of you can fix it, but for most of us, that means it's time to call our guy, right? You call, you call your car guy to fix it, or, or you just sort of cross your fingers and ignore it and like hope maybe one day it goes away. I had a friend in college who actually had taken a piece of black electrical tape and put it over his check engine light so he didn't have to think about it. It was on all the time. He just drove it, didn't want to be reminded, put it over there. The law is like a check engine light for us. 
It is a reminder that something is going on, a blinking light reminder that our lives don't live up to who we were created to be, who we are called to be. We need rescue. But before that light started flashing, before that dashboard light came on, God had already promised that he was going to take care of that himself. He had already promised Abraham that he was coming to fix the problem. So the Old Testament saints waited in hope of the Messiah. They didn't work to save themselves. They didn't keep the law so that God would accept them. Rather, they believed the promise, just like we do. So with us, we don't work and keep the rules and follow the law in order to grab God's attention. We just trust in the promise of God. God's grace always comes by promise and never by performance. So Paul anticipates the next question. Okay, if it was always about Jesus, if the law is just a check engine light for us all along, then was the law a mistake? Did God, did God make a mistake giving the law? Was it contrary to the promises of God and at odds with them from the time it was given? Paul's emphatic in verse 21, certainly not. The law was never a thing that could give us life. It was never something that we could use to achieve our salvation. The law has the power to show us that we are unrighteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. The law's always failed and will always fail to give us light and life. This just what isn't what it was made to do. The check engine light shows that you have a problem in your car. The check engine light does not fix your car. We can't just push that button on our dash and make the check engine light go away. So what does the law do? What is the purpose of the law? What's the positive reason for having the law? And Paul gives us two metaphors here, two illustrations. First, the law is like a prison guard. It's keeping us captive until the coming of the promised Messiah. Constant reminder that we need rescue. Until we place our faith in Messiah, it will continue to remind us of our need for that rescue and redemption. This is true both in a historical large-scale sense, that, that it was a reminder of the people of Israel that it's always been about promise and that the Messiah was coming, but this is also true in our personal lives as well. The law reminds us that we need a rescuer. We need a deliverer. And then Paul uses another metaphor. The law was like a guardian. That's what the version that I read had. And every version kind of has a different word here because it's a word that is foreign to us. In ancient Rome, uh, many of the richer families, many of the families that could uh, afford to have enslaved people would, would hire a special type of servant that was a tutor. And the job of this servant was to take care of the kids. It was a little bit like halfway between a nanny and a tutor. And this, this servant would, would make sure that the kids were properly educated. The servant would make sure that the kids understood what was going to happen when they became a full-fledged adult. He was their, their guardian that sort of raised them to know what the family's values were, to know what was important to them, to know how to live up to their family's name. That was what the law does for us. It teaches us our need to be justified by faith. 
Now, by using the metaphor of the tutor or guardian, Paul is alluding to something more important for us, which is how Paul transitions to the final piece of this passage. Because what Paul says is that we are now all heirs of God, that we have been adopted into his family. And so the question for us then is, what good is the law for us as Christians? Because it would be easy to hear all this. It'd be easy to hear all these things that Paul is saying and going, okay, so then we just like, you know, throw out the law. It's of no use. It's no good. We might be tempted to do that. But as we look at Paul himself, Paul is quoting the law. In this passage, he's alluding to Genesis 15. Genesis was a part of what the Old Testament Jews called the law. Jesus quotes the law all the time. So do all the other writers of the New Testament. So then what's the point? If the law is only a check engine light, if the law is just a tutor, what do we need it for after we come to Christ? Well, before I answer that question, you're going to have to wait to get the the answer to that. I want to point something out before I do, which is that the law of God is rooted in God's character. It's not just an arbitrary set of rules that are set out so that we knew that we couldn't keep them. Otherwise, God could have said things like, okay, you can't go to heaven unless you jump 20 feet in the air. You can't inherit the kingdom of God unless you can fly. And unless you hold your breath for five minutes, you won't be able to please God. God could have set those things out. And we would have known, oh, I can't do that. I guess I need somebody else to do that for me. If God just wanted an arbitrary list of things to remind you that you weren't enough, he could have made them ridiculous like that. But he didn't. The law of God is rooted in his character. It reflects who he is. So God tells us not to murder, not just as an arbitrary rule, but because God is committed to life. Life is precious in his sight. God calls us to be faithful to the biblical sexual ethic because God is a faithful God. God demands that we worship him and him alone because worshiping anything else deforms us and makes us less human. The law is based on the true, good, and beautiful character of God. So then back to the question of what is the good purpose of the law for Christians— Just like the Roman tutor would teach a child, so the law teaches us what it's like to be a part of God's family. As a parent, I'm constantly helping my children with homework. I'm constantly teaching them these things. But the things that I help them with in their homework are not the things that I really care about in their lives. Look, I don't care if you grow up and don't know slope-intercept form to solve equations. And yet my kid was running around the house yesterday. Y equals mx plus b. Y equals mx plus b. I had erased that out of my mind because of its insignificance to the rest of real of life. I can't think of a single one of us, and I'm thankful that our math professor is not here this morning, who has used slope-intercept form at all since high school. And don't let any teacher tell you anything different. No point. What I hope they walk away from my house with is faith in God, that that's what a part of it means to be a part of our family. The tutor taught the children what it meant to be the family and what it was like to live in that family's 
name. So when they came of age, when they no longer needed the tutor, did they throw out all of that stuff from before? Did they throw out all of the things the tutor had taught them about living under their family's name? No. Those teachings became a guide for what it was like to be a part of that family. That's what the law does for us. It teaches us to live up to our new family name. The law doesn't justify us. The law doesn't add to our perfect rescue that Jesus has already accomplished for us. It is the teaching for us on who our family is, which is why Paul ends this whole section with a family metaphor. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we are now the sons of God. By faith, we have been made full heirs of his promises. Now, I know some people might might read this and go, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't Paul say we became sons and daughters of God? That's a, little, that's a little exclusive of you, Paul. That's a little gauche. But actually, Paul is doing something more beautiful than we think of. Because in the Roman times, only sons could inherit property. So by saying that the men and women in the church at Galatia, by their faith in Jesus, by their faith in his promises, their faith in what he'd done, had trusted in him, they had all become sons and heirs just like Jesus. Something that they could never do on their own. We have been made full heirs of the promises of God. Think back to that Genesis story that I talked about. In the vision, God walks the blood path by himself. He is the sole guarantor, the sole keeper of the promise. In fact, he took the covenant promises for us. God took those covenant promises and took the curses on himself, torn apart so that we could be delivered from this present evil age. And so now, when we trust in Jesus, when we place our faith in him, we are united, every single one of us, into Christ. We are one with him. So through, so that what God sees in him, God sees in us. What is true of Jesus is now true of us. He sees us and knows us and treats us as if we have the perfection of Jesus. But not only are we united to him, we're united to one another. In the promises of God, there are no ethnic, gender, or economic distinctions. The bride of Christ is made up of men and women from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue, and from every socioeconomic status. All of us find unity around Jesus, the ultimate heir and fulfillment of all of the promises, all the way back to Genesis. Beloved, behold what manner of love the Father has shown to us, that we should be called the sons of God, and so we are. We bear the family name Christian. We eat the family food communion. And now let us live our lives bearing witness to that name, living like our new uncommon family because of what the promised one Jesus has done for us. Let's pray.